listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of Cliff's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation. Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. This is Clifford Hudson. The subject of today's discussion is also contained in my recent book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. In that book, I have a chapter entitled, Innovation is Not a Luxury. Innovation on many fronts was a continuing pursuit at Sonic in all of my 23 years I served as CEO. Today's discussion will be with two guys whose middle names are innovation, or at least improvisation. These two guys are Peter Gross and TJ Jagodowski, the two guys you have almost certainly seen in almost 20 years of Sonic Drive-In television commercials. In spite of any familiarity you may have with their screen presence, their individual stories are unique and interesting and a lot of fun. I'm happy to share this time with you today with Peter Gross and TJ Jagodowski. How are you doing? We're good, good morning, Uncle Cliff. Thank you for having us. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure to have you. My pleasure to have that that uh, wonderful title, uh, Uncle Cliff. Uh, there's there's well. no way I got this job through anything other than nepotism. <laughs> we we all know that. You know, I don't know if I ever told you or not. I really always fancied myself as the oh. third guy. You know, <laughs> the, maybe maybe I'd get to sit in the back seat or something. But then. Then the first time I heard TJ refer to me as Uncle Cliff, I knew like, the party was over. <laughs> all the first drafts of the scripts <laughs> where we were like, why is there a guy named Cliff in all of these? And he said, well, we were forced to write Cliff into all the spots, and then we, eventually he sort of works his way out of them. But. Well, that was my request of uh, Barkley, the guys that uh, came up with this idea. But uh, So they put it, they put it in there to, to please me, but obviously it got filtered out before, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, before the final shoot. So uh, I don't know how that happened. Anyway, it's great to be with you guys today, and uh, I look forward to having a conversation about uh, uh, this path, almost 20-year path, and creative that you all produced for Sonic and helped the brand so significantly. But we can also, of course, uh, throw in here and there just about anything you want to talk about, too, but uh, within, within reason, of course. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to that. Let's start back a little bit. Where'd you grow up? And we can, we can go in an alphabetical order. I don't know what that means, but we can go in alphabetical order. Yeah, first, the two of and first name and last We're, name. So, yeah, I think you got me on both feet. So I'll start. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So TJ, give, give me, give me the lowdown. Uh, I grew up in uh, Holyoke, Massachusetts, the great state of Massachusetts, uh, kind of a old mill town in, in Western Mass. Yeah, lived there until college, and then after college, moved to moved to Chicago. But yeah, grew up in New England. Well, and uh, I I understand that um, Chicago, you went to Syracuse. I did. 
Yeah. And you studied at um, the communication school there. Yes. Yeah. The Newhouse School. I had a dual major um, there. It was uh, television, radio and film, all of which as soon as I graduated was out of date within within minutes of, of graduating. We were using like three quarter inch tape and, you know, and, and razor blades to cut film. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I ever mentioned up, but I have a niece who went to the same school and the same program. Is that right? Yeah. And I should tell you, her name is TJ2. Get out of here. So, uh, she yeah, goes by so. TJ2? Oh, that's a little creepy. <laughs> well, it's like C3PO, you yeah. know, whatever. You're the yeah. TJ. <laughs> I, I I know I didn't do well enough there to, for someone to want to be the second one of me. So she, she was uh, hoping she was hoping to get some scholarship money with that kind of application, you know. When did she go through, Cliff? Uh, she's uh, probably uh, twenty. Um, oh. She's gonna. I'm gonna screw this up. She's probably twenty seven years old. Okay, so she and was so she <clears throat> finished four or five years ago. Great. Yeah. yeah she probably great. learned stuff that's still that's still yeah. useful. Yeah. And actually, her name is May. You know, she's probably going to listen to this, so I better, I better get that, uh, get that squared away. You know, from here forward, she'll go by TJ too. You know, but okay, well, that's great. That's great. I appreciate you uh, sharing that. That's a and and Pete, your path. You know, I was born in a different place and wound up in the same place. I was born in Scarsdale, New York, which is a suburb of New York City, the home yeah. of the diet. Home of the diet. Home of the diet doctor. It was a terrible, <laughs> strange situation with that doctor although that happened when I was quite young so I never knew it um, personally it was like I think I was probably four or five years old then I went to college in, in Illinois at Northwestern which is just uh, just north of Chicago and then I right. stuck around right. I got in Chicago but my major at Northwestern was also radio TV and film and I also we were cutting film with razor blades and using videotapes and felt like the, the second I graduated they they got all the good equipment. My joke was that as I was walking away from graduation, I saw them backing up a bunch of like digital editing equipment into the, into the uh, Annenberg building or whatever it was called, the Gary Marshall building. But yeah, I mean, I, I like generally remember a few things from my film school time that were practical. Obviously, it took like film study courses and stuff, but I never used it. You know? Instead of diplomas, they should have just given us the old three quarter inch decks and all the old uh, recording uh... Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, here's a Betamax. You'll, you'll use this for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Here you go, kid. So that, that, that Pete would t say what uh, got you Chicago way. TJ, what took you to uh, Chicago after college? Oddly enough, uh, mostly the fact that we took a, a trip here when I was a kid, uh, when I was like 12 or 13, I think. And that I just rem remember having a really wonderful time here. Uh, yeah. And so I knew I, I needed to get out of Holyoke, if I wanted to pursue anything, you know, anything in, in production or, or whatever in what I had studied. And so it was a combination of that trip and a college friend from, from Syracuse, it moved, was working on a TV show of The Untouchables and said I could basically crash on her couch until I, <laughs> until I found a place of my own. She was a newlywed. I think I lived in her living room for like three months. Huh. Oh, well, I'm glad that came to an end. I was Good. afraid that was a still, your, still your address or something. But, uh, yeah. It's a nice couch. Uh, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll leave as soon as I find something better. Nice couch. So nice husband, too. <laughs> Great. Very understanding. Very understanding, yes. Uh, so how about uh, um, improv? How about comedy in college? For either of you, was this a, an obvious coming vocation or was it something you were doing as a bit of a hobby uh, by that time or did it come later? For me, I, uh, I I did not get to college thinking 
I want to perform, do comedy, any of that stuff. I, I remember when I visited the school and I visited a few different ones, I liked that there were a lot of different things going on at Northwestern. They had an acting program. They had a film program that I was not uh, eventually graduated from, but I didn't, I switched into it my sophomore year. I that was pretty aimless. I thought I was going to be a psychology major. Um, I really liked photography. I took some photography classes. My, one of my first jobs out of school, other than waiting tables, because it was easy and took no um, university qualifications. It just <laughs> took the ability to write something down, hand it to someone. And then when they made that dish, hand it back to the people at the table. Um, <laughs> I was always very good at those skills. Yeah, but my, one of my first gigs was a photographer's assistant. So that was kind of my, for my film school stuff, like that's what I thought maybe I would do was, was be a photographer. But my first exposure to any of that kind of what would be like Chicago comedy improv was there was an improv group at school and I just mm. heard that they were having auditions and I just was like, oh, that seems fun. So I just went to go do it and didn't get it, of course, because I had no training and didn't know what I was up to, but uh, it made me really interested. And then I would go see their shows and then eventually I'd go see Second City and then someone told me to take classes. So I didn't go to Chicago knowing that that was going to be something I wanted to do, but I, I got swept up in it. Right. And did you participate with it on campus? While I did, yeah. When I was a senior, uh, basically it was funny. So this show was called the Meow Show, and it's kind of a play on the mascot of, of the university's the Wildcats. And there's a, wow. another wow. show on campus called WAMU, which I think each of those letters stands for something about some student performing organization. So the Meow Show came about in the late 70s as a sort of a play off of WAMU. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus was one of the first people wow. in that group along with her husband, Brad Hall, and a few other folks who went on to, they all went and joined uh, SNL at the same time. But um, yeah, when I was a freshman, sophomore, and junior, the people who were a year above me, each of those years had this lock on that group. They were all in it and they were all really good. And so when they graduated, there was this power vacuum and me and my friends yeah. leapt into that power vacuum and we eventually got, we got cast. And then, wow, cool. Yeah. That's cool. DJ, what about your college time? Did that uh, involve much comedy activity? I was much uh, in a literal sense. Much too busy drinking and oversleeping, Cliff, at that time <laughs> to to engage in pursuits as serious as comedy. Uh, I did that right. too, but these, these things were at night, so I was right, able right. to. Sleep. So you incorporated incorporated comedy into your classroom activities. Yeah, I, I had the lifestyle of a really successful comedian without being in comedy or having any success. I, you know, just lived to excess and, uh, and looked like I was going to burn out really, really quickly. So, no, I, I had no exposure to improvisation until I moved to Chicago. And the, the, the first thing I saw was uh, because this same friend who let me crash on her couch brought me to Second City. And that was kind of the, the, the life-changing moment she brought me there she brought me to a place called improv olympic for the first time which is pete and i you know spent many uh, a night at that place hundreds and hundreds of shows at that place we both worked at second city together so if not for her i never would have been to these places but that's where i fell in love with it i saw it and literally thought well if i don't try to do this i might i might never be happy and it was the first thing that i fell first pursuit that i I would say I fell sort of madly in in love with. Who was on stage at Second City when you went there first time? 
some pretty good people, uh, yeah. Mr. Colbert, Mr. Yeah. Carell. I saw them too in my <laughs> and uh, and then Jackie Hoffman and Fran Adams, Ruthie yeah. Rudnick, and it might have been Allman at the at the time, and Rosowski. I think it might have been a big a big cast or like yeah. a four boy cast. That I saw. Mm. Was that yeah. the one where they did Maya and? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was "Take Me Out to the Balkans" or "We Made a Mess of Mesopotamia." Is that what? Uh, uh, I think it was. There was a show called "Are You Now or Have You Ever Been Mellow?" That I think. I was. think that was the second show I saw. I think "Take Me Out to the Balkans" was the first. It had a, an incredible patter song that that Mr. Colbert had to do in graduation gown and mm-hmm. and hat. It was it was dense, man, super dense. But yeah, this uh, is like for context. This is like 93, 94. Yeah. Okay, good. That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah who, thank you. Know, you. These yes. people were naming yeah. them all at Sun yeah. City. Yeah. Our predecessors. Well, and your, your uh, point of context is great for you know, the listener for broad reasons. I was, I was about to ask about timing. I just be thinking about it in relation to the 2001, 2002 development of the sign of creative for which, which you guys came into. So, the time you moved to Chicago then was early to mid nineties. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And that great. was when it was just, you know, it was just the best thing on earth. I kept on, people kept on telling me I was in the best time of my life and you know, and like, Hey, high school is the best, best years of your life and college best years of your life. And I kept on thinking like, Oh, please God, no, please don't let this be the best, <laughs> the best time is this is, this is dour for what lies in then in the future as to what's not the right. best. Right. And then as I found improvisation, it was a bunch of like young, funny, interesting people, you know, in rooms doing make believe. It was like, well, this is clearly the best time of my life. And that best time of my life lasted a long, long time. Yeah, that's that's cool. So both of you would have uh, then it sounds like finished college in the early 90s. Graduated in 92. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Gotcha. I graduated in 96, but I was in Chicago, you know, in the I was watching stuff in, in uh, my first um, Second City show was like, I think, 94. I, and I started taking classes in 95. So, Pete, one of the takeaways is TJ is quite a bit older than you. I was very young. I was very young for my academic. Uh, I'll, I'll keep in mind with my terminology that I use between the two of you to make sure it's uh, inter- interpreted appropriately. I'm so. the young one. Yeah. I'm the baby of the group. I'm the dumb one. I'm the and, and I'm the uncle. So this yeah, is great. Right. Well rounded <laughs> group. So, uh, then through the uh, '90s, it sounds like uh, kind of getting into that uh, uh, that culture, uh, meaning in Chicago. I'm assuming through the '90s, both of you then stayed in Chicago and uh, kind of started burrowing into that community, mm-hmm. meaning the, the comedy community and the improv community, etc. So getting more kind of strength and power in your talent, you know, exposure through that time. So, yeah, it was, it's in a pretty, pretty immersive thing. Like what a lot of us, Pete and myself included just did, I think whatever it took during the day. Right. So that we could keep on improvising at night keep on taking classes. And so you just took whatever kind of, you know, at least I'll, I'll speak for myself here. It took whatever job I could find. There were no, I had no aspirational job ever during my improv career. I delivered clothes. I dressed up as a Sprite can for the World Cup. I ran orders down at the Chicago Board of Trade. None of these things that I, you know, see myself doing forever. Um, sounds like sounds like being a CEO, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure, of, you know, sure. It it's uh, juggling all this stuff, you know? So, you know. Yeah, and so like, you know, a friend of ours, Noah, likes to and you know, likes to say that the, the nice part about improvisation at that point is that it was a guaranteed dead end. 
So that for, for people like us who were, had no goals, it was like, oh, this is perfect. This, yeah. this can't work out. <laughs> and did the two of you cross paths during this time, the late 90s? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Both Second City and at, um, at an improv Olympic. Okay. And, and literally had the opportunity to work together or just observe each other through that process? Yeah, we were kind of pleasantly intertwined in, for, for a while. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah we I, did a few shows yeah. um, that were at Improv Olympic. We were on different ensembles. The, the structure of Improv Olympic was you'd go and you'd see two different groups do a show, you know, in, in an hour, hour, 15, hour and a half time block. Right. And right. we were each in different groups, but there was a group that was formed that was kind of like a bunch of people who got to do together to do a, a different sort of special style improv show. We were both in that. And at Second City, we were, again, in different groups. There were these touring companies that would tour the country and do stuff. So we were in different ones. But the, the pools were so small that we cross-pollinated and we were friends anyway. And and with my advanced age, I ended up coaching a team of Pete's yeah. and I ended up directing Pete's touring company for a short yeah. and unillustrious time as well. Ah, yeah. And ah. I was TJ's understudy yeah. <laughs> for uh, a show right before we started doing the commercials. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that was that painful, that understudy? No, it was period? great. Actually, I understudied him for two different things. But um, there was a show that TJ worked on uh, at Second City and then left the show uh, before the sort of run of it was over. So then I, I stepped in and did his parts in that show. And that was actually right around the time that the Sonic thing started, pretty much. Oddly enough, we were also both hired by an international assassin corporation to murder each other and decided to not fulfill the contracts as well. Yes. And they, the stupidly, they did <laughs> not hire a third assassin to kill either or both of us if we didn't follow through on our contract. Don't make the same mistake, Hudson. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I mean, talk about the gang that couldn't shoot straight. They were- Well, hopefully the statute of limitations has passed now. So yes, I won't worry, we've I won't worry some, about that. Some holiday cards from them, they've apologized. There we go, there we go. So we've worked up into the um, end of that decade, the 1990s into the, the new century. And so how did, you, uh, how did you learn about this audition? And what did you, what did you learn? What was the- what was your perception of it when the, this audition became available for an ad campaign? <laughs> they said, do you want, it said, do you want to change your life? What are you doing for the next 20 years? <laughs> no, it was strikingly, it was like very much like just another audition. Pretty much. Okay. You know, so, so I don't know that world that yeah. well. Uh, you had an agent or otherwise um, that yeah. uh, said, Hey, you want to try out for this or how, how is it posted on a wall somewhere or, you know, how that, that time, about? I wonder, I don't remember the technology of how we would find out. I think we probably got phone calls on our home phone yep. from an agent who we both have the same agent. And in Chicago is mainly commercials. Every once in a while, there'd be a movie or TV show that came through town. But, you know, when there's a, this is just good for general public to know, like when someone gets an audition, it's just, they put the specs out. They say, hey, we're looking for this type of person, you know, it can be looking for an old man or a kid or a mom type or whatever, or an athlete who can do this specific thing, whether it's a commercial or a movie or a TV show or anything. And then the agents get from the casting directors or the people who are in charge of casting, agents get those descriptions and they look at their roster of people and they say who matches this description. And then they 
call those people up and say, hey, we have an audition for you. And then you show up at a certain time and you look at a script beforehand, you do your thing. And then, you know, if they like you, then they hire you. And uh, so it was pretty much on the spot in terms of having the script for this thing. It was different from the get go. Right. Yeah. OK. I don't recall a script for this. TJ. No. I, think it was in no. I remember two of us like it's funny that people say it like, yeah, so, so you get these, you know, you got a call from your agent. Be here at this time. I was probably. I was not living my healthiest lifestyle at that time. And I think I was probably making about 30% of these, these calls. Yeah. <laughs> I was highly encouraging my agent to give me nothing before noon. And then even <laughs> still, I don't think I was making a lot of these. So I still have so much gratitude to the fact that I even made it down to this place. Cause you also, when you got a call, you did not want to go to David O'Connor's. It was a pain in the butt to get to. And that's where this audition was. Help me out. Help me out. What's David O'Connor's? There's when you get an audition, you go to there's probably one of maybe maybe three Pete that we we go to most often for casting, casting directors, casting agencies. Casting directors have their offices and we didn't they're generally downtown ish in the loop sort of area. And we live north of there and don't have cars. You rely on the subway to the L to get you down there. And most of them were in a decent location, except for this one day. O'Connor, you'd have to go downtown and then take a bus. Yeah. or something which i'm There's sure a we bus or another like mile and a half walk west yeah, it was like just from the nearest train stop so it is, it's a small miracle that, that yeah 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 and, and we auditioned so, separately and you did audition separately, separately. that's one of the yeah. questions that, yeah okay. yeah Not they, were, they basically handed yeah. us a dog toy burger right it was like a dog toy squeak burger the rubber burger and I think the, I believe if I don't, I forget who was helping us out with the audition, but two people in, in chairs. And then we were improvising as though we had driven up to someone else's drive through. And then we were interacting with the person uh, who was working the drive through. And so I, th- right. I think they gave us the situation that like, Oh, you know, ask for something they don't have. And I, I, if I remember correctly from talking with Pat and, and you may know this better Cliff, that they were looking for people who could interact with each other, a couple, a pair, a duet that could interact with each other. Well, that n- neither of them felt like they needed to be the star, but also could interact with a third party in a, in a way that they didn't seem like they were being abusive to the third party, that it right. was a cooperation amongst the yes. three without, anyone feeling like oh they also need to emerge as the the leader of the of this yes yes a matter of fact the barkley guys did make the comment to me that when the two each of you i mean you must have done the audition separately but at some point they also had you together is that right does that ring a bell i don't know if we did it together i mean very often in in any audition you have as many people come in it could be as many as 50 or more they want to see a smaller group sort of do it again it's called a callback so I remember being going to a callback and and frequently in a commercial setting, the people who are casting it, the the writers of the ads, not the people from the company, the the client, but the the ad agency people will be in the room when you're doing a commercial callback. They wouldn't be there in the first round. And yeah. I do remember those those folks being there, but I don't think I did it with you. I think I was with Pat Shea. There were a few people that we both remember who were kind of down to the, you know, it was like five or six of us or something. They were, uh, and I, I remember doing it with a different person, but I think TJ and I look differently. We have different vibes. So even though they didn't put us together in the callback, they realized, oh, those two 
would work well. But they did. They made it clear to me they thought that the there would be good complementary, you know, chemistry between the two of you. And how how they came to that conclusion, I have no idea. They <laughs> <No. laughs> also talked to the casting director, and the casting director would have said, "Oh yeah, if those two work together. They know each other from sex." So somebody must have vouched for that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, that could have, that could have, it could have been. This was also just to give context to people. This was at the time when I think shows like Punked were popular so there were there were quite a few there was some momentum behind like let's prank somebody with a hidden camera and the, the, these commercials had a hidden camera we were driving yeah burger king or mcdonald's yeah I mean, yeah i do remember them saying and i know tj is very much into this and i was as well but tj was very uncomfortable with the idea of us doing this commercial at the expense of yeah um you know just regular person who was doing their right. job at the driver window so we never made it about like hey you you this person you are yeah the butt of the yeah. joke it was more sort of like just yeah because yeah. yeah. i think it's you know for a million years it's been a common punchline to like all right why don't you go get a job at mcdonald's or whatever why don't you get a job you know like and right. we didn't want to be when we we you know like we were out there going to other people's drive-thrus at at six in the morning we were busting hump to get up at that hour of day to get out there these people got up every day to do that to go make yeah. people breakfast and yeah. you know like it didn't feel like the type of thing that should be made fun of it was it right it was really honorable I, you know and they yeah, did it I, every every day they got well, i happened i happened to agree with you yeah <laughs> it makes any yeah. difference yeah it's the same at, and i to talk about innovation if you want me to you know force this into your construct clip of your <laughs> chapter it was innovative to do a hidden camera thing and not be rude to the yeah, right, right, doing it right. right. Yeah. i do i do by the way want you to force it into the yeah. context of my book, my book my chapter and any other guidance i might give you today so i appreciate i do I but i do think that. that's why i do think that's why people reacted well to it because it yeah and it was against the grain of something that they had already seen so if it was mean some people would have been like, oh, yeah, that's kind of funny. I get it. I get what Sonic's doing. But because yeah. it wasn't, I think it was able to resonate much more. Well, I, I have to say my own recollection was I didn't think you made any one person a, a butt of a joke or anything. No, so I didn't see it as being hostile to an any individual. I did think you you were doing a good job of kind of juxtaposing our brand versus, you know, brand X, whatever that was at that moment. I, I would, I would uh, offer it to you, though, today that there were some select group of franchisees, but they are also in our franchise leadership group that uh, had the view that juxtaposition like this was unnecessary and had a had not pointing at you guys, but just the very con the very concept had a potential negative twist to it. Everyone liked the two of you, and everyone liked the idea. They wanted to move it to where it was that negative comparison thing was removed, which is exactly where the creative evolved. I would say instead of being in someone else's drive-in lane, uh, drive-in window, you moved, we moved to being on lot. And so it became Sonic centric instead of comparative centric. And immediately, frankly, I think provided a different format for the two of you to, you know, kind of take it and run with it. Yeah. I think um, it was more about, then it became more about talk about compare and contrast the, the differences between the two of us <laughs> or these two characters that we, we played it in the car. So yeah, it was, it was very different. I think it was probably more fun that way. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I like the creative much better. It was, we evolved to that. I also had to drive around when yeah. we were going from place to place. It was much more fun. It was more relaxing. Logi- logistically, it was it was just so much easier because we we might spend forty minutes going from you yeah. know a, re- a, a a one place to another place, and then it's immediately blown because the angle's wrong for the camera truck can't yeah. get on the other side yeah. of the fence or whatever, and so yeah. Yeah. it was you know. But when we were parked in a you know in a stall at a at a Sonic, we we could just go go go, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say that probably both were good for the brand. At the time that we moved to the style of creative, I can tell you that the Barkley guys were of the view, uh, gee, the only thing that seems to be working on television is reality television. Mm-hmm. And pe- people want to see something spontaneous and live, et cetera. And I recall at that time that the number one show, I think, had suddenly become, so you want to be a millionaire, you know? Right. So here it was uh, live on television each night. So the Barkley folks felt that way. So my suspicion is this comparative approach we did at the outset probably gave more feeling of it being spontaneous, not only because it was just the two of you in a drive-through, but that, that real check, you know, the real interaction with a real employee, a real business, you know, not a staged thing. So at the outset, that might've been a, a strong breakthrough. I also would offer that once we moved on lot and I think that ultimately for the brand with the two of you on lot, the creative became far stronger but more importantly, then the recognition of the two of you at Onlot, it enabled us to expand our offerings so much more using that base creative because it was immediately recognizable with the two of you on lot. People knew it was Sonic and yeah. they plugged in because they wanted to see what you guys were going to do, you know? And uh, yeah, it enabled us to go off to, you know, sandwiches, drinks, treats, ice cream, side orders. You think because the ads were strong, recognizable, and provided the solid base, you were able to introduce more products that absolutely would have with absolutely that. with traditional creative, you would have started with the product. You know, you would have had to get the person buying in, you know, stay with me, stay with me, right. you know, on the creative. And you had to get them to buy into the product. And then eventually, you know, why, why, you know, why they should be interested in this product and then get to the brand and how this works. But by turning that around and immediately saying, this is where you are. You're at a Sonic drive-in and here are these two guys that you, you enjoy seeing what their message is. This enabled us to get on a smaller budget, advertising budget, enabled us to get much wider recognition just right up front when the, when the commercial started. And then we could branch into any number of products. And so the, the recognition of the brand wasn't about the product. It was really, here's how the concept works, i.e. two people sitting in a car. It just happened to have a strong entertainment value with the two of you. So it was, it was enormously powerful, changed our business. You know, you guys should have asked for a lot more money than you asked for. Oh, we asked you just, well, you guys weren't, weren't, weren't giving it up. You know, we always never, yeah, nobody ever told me that. No, we should have gotten points or something. So he said he wanted a franchise outside of Lubbock and they said, no dice. (laughs) (laughs) That could have been arranged, you know. That was my in-laws. You know, my my in-laws are from Texas, so my hometown had a Sonic. What was what what was the hometown? I'm sorry, Andrews. It's between Midland, Odessa, and Lubbock. So yeah. it's a, it's the biggest town between those, but it's a small town. But they had no Burger King, no McDonald's, but they had a Sonic. Oh. Even back when she was growing up, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, you must have been a, a frequenter then. That's um... yeah. I mean, we. We'd and you knew what to order when you went there. Absolutely. And we would go there a lot and I'd get recognized a lot. And, you know, I'm, I'm have made 
numerous trips to Texas over the years, an incalculable yeah. number of trips to Texas. Yeah. And all the, um, all the Texans, all the Texans are amazed you hadn't decided to move there. You know, well, so, frequently they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Do you so do people that? want uh, autographs or pictures or anything? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Very often. Yeah. Very, we very got fun. to actually go down to, to the high school down yeah. there to help um, raise money for a scholarship for an art scholarship. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and yeah. that never would have happened if not for the commercials, they would have not cared that there were two improvisers from Chicago, but uh, yeah, but, having done the commercials we got to go down there and meet people and you know and say hi and uh and did they call it the pete and tj scholarship or is they, uh, <laughs> it was, or, or the tj and pete i'm sorry the tj and pete scholarship it was in honor of my in-laws right because yep. they were having their 50th wedding anniversary oh how fun and i think deb might have i think it was maybe went to a student who was going to pursue the arts at the college level that's what i think it was yeah kind of for deb's pursuit but named yeah named in honor of the uh, your in-laws well, that's neat that's neat Do you feel like a jack-of-all-trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a, quote, expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack-of-All-Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack-of-all-trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. So when you were, when you were selected for this uh, creative you kind of started running with it. I mean, at that point, like you said, you, you, it sounds like you did over time, probably hundreds and hundreds of auditions, if not thousands. What was your perception when this thing got going in terms of the, a good gig, a short-term gig, any sense? Did we sign you to a, like a six-month contract or something initially, or, or was there any understanding like that? No, I think that came came a few years later. I think the first one was we just, you know, it was nothing we had ever done had turned into ever doing it more than once. Right. Like yeah. if, if we had ever gotten a commercial job, it was never like, oh, you did another one of them. You worked that day. And then when they were done with you, you were done. And, and that was that was it. It was never a thought in our minds that like, oh, we could potentially become spokespeople basically for a brand. It was that if they run the two that we shot today or the three that we shot today, maybe we make rent for the year. That was that was kind of our kind of our our hope you know our biggest hope which, which speaks to how expensive that couch was that you were sleeping <laughs> yeah, on so, right. was that, yeah. that's another way to deal with uh, uh being an improviser and uh, stringing these jobs together is live in a place where you don't have a very high rent yeah, yeah. A lot of right right but it was a sweet as heck gig we got flown to arizona you know like first class we got put up in a you know like a nice marriott or a, a sheridan or something we got per diem you get per diem which means you get money to spend that day on food. So Pete and I, like that night, we're like, let's meet up at this seafood place. And yeah. we're like, I think we bought a lobster tail or something, didn't when we? When you go to Arizona, you, you're there for the seafood. And <laughs> that is something we learned very early. Yeah. And I was like, I think Bruce Babbitt, who was like an Arizona, oh, yeah. like might have been an Arizona State Senator at the time, might have been a cabinet, yeah. a cabinet member. Yeah. I think we were in yeah, the, he was, like, he was, yeah. yeah, the elevator together. So it was like, 
this is incredible. And you got to work with a buddy and improvise, which is like if, if we've done things for free that the two criteria were it's improvised and it's with a friend. Those two things would get us to do just about anything. And so this met that criteria as well. So when that uh, process began in that, those early stages, O2 was the first shooting, I recall, or the first filming, I should say. How much preparation before you showed up uh, in Arizona or Southern California or wherever the filming was going to be, how much prep was, was necessary before you hit the scene? Well, if we really focused, it would take uh, absolutely zero time. Yep. <laughs> None. That's, that's, we insisted that's upon that. We insisted upon I said to my writer, I don't want to do any preparation. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was none i mean like we we didn't know what we were going to be doing that day all we knew was we'd be improvising in a car with a friend and we'd find out that morning i think yeah you know like we'd be handed some index cards and it would say something as general as like pete and tj discussed their trip to the ciabatta region of italy or whatever and that was that was it and we might have gosh pete 30 to 60 of those cards is That's that 60. yeah i mean it would be these were these were very much like a very unusual setup for sure because we were improvising our way through things and i think you and and the barkley folks felt like let's let them run through a bunch of them and then the ones that are working let's stop and and work on it a little bit and if one of these ideas isn't working let's throw it away so we there literally would be a stack of index cards it could be as many as 60 and in a day, if we worked for, you know, six, seven, eight hours, you'd get through those easily. Because if you, we could spend a, three minutes on one and they would say, this isn't working out. You know, we had an idea, we tried it out, it's not really working, but there's tons of these. So let's move on to the next one. And I think yeah. it behooved them and us to not really prepare because then it felt much more spontaneous. We couldn't yeah. ever plan anything. So yeah. whatever felt really natural and spontaneous was natural and spontaneous. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you guys, when we started seeing the creative then in that two, three, four time frame, man, it was just totally different because years before, someone would come in with several storyboards. What do you think about this? What do you, to try to get some efficiency to the process before you actually had to go through a filming you know, process, well, and much less staging, uh, hiring, you know, and so on. In this case, that was all turned around, turned upside down. And because you would do, we, you would do what you did do, and they did it the way you've just described. They could come in to us, and instead of having storyboards, they'd show us six, eight, or 10 potential commercials. Mm -hmm. They had the food creative done. Brian Brooker describes it as they might have 200 potential shots from uh, you know, one, sh one session with the two of you. They'd narrow it down to you know, 30 internally with their group, and then narrow it down to six, eight, or 10 to show us. But it was extraordinary, the flexibility that this created and then bring it to us and show us the six or eight, eight or 10, but real commercials, you know? And then, then once we signed off on it, you know, boom, it could be out the, you know, the next day, you know? So uh, to go back to, go back to Pete's theme of innovation. You know? Yes. My theme. I'm uh, pushing this. You know, yes. <laughs> yes. There was a, a real hero in the, in the, in this oh, chain. His name was Matt Walsh and he was a young editor at a place called the white house, which was a post-production house. Um, and so the, the way that the numbers winnowed down is that, you know, in three days, if Pete and I went out on a three-day shoot with, with Barkley, I don't know, we might end up with 90 scenarios. 
that's that yeah. would not be that would not be insane yeah, not and maybe but 90 90 stabs at different ideas for sure yeah right Right. And then, and then maybe they would say, you know, 15, maybe 20 of these would be like, no, none of those are going to work. Let's just get rid of them. So maybe we're down to like 60 or 70 that we tried. <laughs> some, some we try multiple times, some we try 12 times, some we try 18 times, some we try four times. So at the end of this shoot, and we, you know, we, and early on, we tried to work, you know, like we got more efficient as we went, but early on, you know, like we were working 10 or 12 hour days from the time you started until the time you ended. And so Matt Walsh would get 30 hours of Pete and I just blathering back and forth to each other, like 30 hours of raw footage. And like, here you go, buddy. Here's, here's 70 scenarios and 30 hours. Do what you can. And so Matt's job was to take these things down. Usually I think at that time there's maybe eight seconds of voiceover. So he had to take it down and I think into like 22, maybe 24 second chunks of usable material and then yeah. maybe yeah. you know maybe 50 of those were brought to barkley evergreen maybe more and then barkley evergreen would winnow it down and then those numbers would get down to a certain amount i don't know which were eventually shown to you and then winnowed right. finally to stuff that would make air but this poor cat just like got bombarded with yeah. you know yeah. a, a nearly impossible sounding assignment yeah. um and unsung hero oh my that's gosh great. yeah yeah that's great well, what about over time? What about the physicality of the setup? Once you went on lot, did the process uh, change much? Uh, it, it occurs to me that as time, more time passed, the application of technology probably changed just with the use of, you know, smartphones for filming options and so on. But otherwise, did the, the physicality of the process change uh, much over the you know, next 15 years or stay pretty much the same? Yeah, I mean, it, once we got comfortable with okay, it's these two guys in the car. Then I think it was speaking of innovation, which I hate to, <laughs> I don't like to do, talk about that. But then it became, well, how can we change this pattern? How, we, how can we break this up and give people something a little bit different? I don't think we ever really, it never, never really mattered to me. I always assumed that we would do most of it in the car and then we'd probably do a few things out of the car. But right. there was a, yeah, there was a, a time when it started to be like, let's get them out. We would, we shot something where we like went all around Los Angeles eventually. And we did oh, yeah, right. like this multi part thing that was all about uh, something with a different kind of burger. And then that thing didn't even air, but there were a lot of, a lot of different steps that were taken. Uh, I think the technology sort of changed somewhere around 2010 or 11, where we started shooting it on like a different types of cameras and stuff like that. And I think early on they went with a a purposely kind of low tech presentation. I think it was meant to look a little bit like it might be something that Pete and I could just pull off ourselves so that there was a little bit of like, you know, danger to the idea or hidden camera aspect to the to the idea that you you didn't know quite what to expect because it didn't look produced, managed, polished and packaged. It looked like it was a little bit more gorilla. And so I think when the ad agencies changed, part of that was to use the technology at hand to polish it up, to make it look a little bit more professional and not something that maybe these two guys were just doing out on their, out on their yeah. own, you know? So, so your reference to that transition, I mean, ad agencies changed around 2011, 2000, and then that the great recession, you know, nine, 10, 11. So I had to, you know, kind of for the record say, in that great recession, we had to question all kinds of things we've been doing to try to 
get momentum going once again in the business. The biggest single mistake we made was to uh, start a new creative campaign and move away from the two of you. And our sales suffered. You know, it's fascinating when we talk about the flexibility. Cliff, of the would you say it's the greatest mistake you've ever made in your life? Wow. I mean, I, I would uh, a lot to say, I, but it sounds like that's what you're saying. It's the... I, I would, uh, I, I'll go with you on that for today's purposes. <laughs> sure, I, I feel like... Let's change yeah. the theme of this from innovation to, to regret and shame. So, okay, Cliff. So you, you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm glad to be your guest today. So, uh, the, uh, but the, uh, you know, anecdotally, one of the things that happened was when we started a new creative campaign, we had people ask what happened? We don't see you guys on television anymore. And, and I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about Sonic. They said, we don't see Sonic on television anymore. One of the things we did that winter, 11 going into 12, we did, uh, the business was, was, it was hurting, you know, not horribly so, but we were so accustomed to, you know, sustained growth and success that in one market, we took one of the quote old ads, you know, and ran it in just a spe- one specific market and did that promotion that the ad was for. and. Yeah, I think this was like December of 11, you know, December 2011, maybe maybe November. I think it's December. And that one market took off in such an aberration from the rest of the system, took off positively that with that, I mean, two weeks of that test, my advice to our agency was, let's get back with Pete and TJ and let's, you know, get this set up. <laughs> so that's why in that December, January, January 12 timeframe, uh, they would have reached out to the two of you and said, hey, you you yeah. reached out to us. Are, are you willing Personally. to give us a, give us a second chance? A second chance. <laughs> I mean, and uh, I remember Pete played a little hard to get. You know. Well, uh, TJ said yes same day. Pete waited twenty four hours. I, I missed. I missed you, Cliff. You fall in love that first time. You never really. You never really get over it. You know. <laughs> I do have to say, I make. I don't make people wait. I make myself wait. When I was in Chicago. TJ was there that night. I was in Chicago. I had submitted writing to be hired for the Colbert Report. But this is Stephen Colbert's first show on Comedy Central. This was yeah, yeah. I, I submitted yeah. in the fall of 2006. And they were they were looking for new writers. And I never heard back. So I just thought, oh, they hired somebody else. And they sort of moved on. And then it was the beginning of March in 2007, easily six months later. And I got a call on my cell phone driving up to go do an improv show at this theater called the annoyance theater. And TJ was in that cast as well. And it was them calling to offer me this job. (laughs) And I was just really surprised. And I had all these plans. I was going to do all this other stuff. And I had, I had just moved on and I was really moving my life in this different vector, like just pointed myself in another direction. And then I got this call that I would have been thrilled to get the, previous fall but i told stephen colbert personally who got on the phone and i was like can i tell you guys tomorrow (laughs) just because (laughs) i i it was just too big of a shock to my system i had to process it absorb it yeah i do absorb it process it and also talk to my wife and say like i should i should do this right and then she was yeah absolutely of course (laughs) yeah so if I made well, you wait, I'm sorry. I did it to everybody. I did it to Stephen Colbert. Well, I feel better all of a yeah, sudden. Good. That's great. So I'd be curious, uh, shifting a little bit, because uh, uh, I don't know if this is intuitive for you or not, but as a CEO, number one thing I like to see is other people's success. Ooh. You know, as an organizational leader, leading at whatever level. I mean, my definition of success is when I help other people succeed. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's hands down. That's the most gratifying thing you can see. 
So I've taken enormous pleasure in watching you guys succeed, you know, so wonderfully. It was great for our brand, great for our business, but it was great just to see you, you know, perform your profession in such a fantastic way that helped us and appeared to help you quite a bit as well. So that leads me to the question, what did this mean for your career? You know, it's a serious question, TJ. It's a serious question. What did this mean for your life? You know, what did this mean for your, for your path? Professionally, it was without a doubt, the single largest success and help and change to my life that I could imagine occurring. Like I, I think Pete and I both from early on, once they had us back and it became clear that maybe we'd be doing this for a while, I was like, this is the goose. Like, this is what you hope for. You know, it, it ended up being years of pleasant, very pleasant employment, not only with Pete, like who after whatever, 17 or 18 years of working together on, on, on Sonic stuff, I don't think we ever had a cross word with each other. We always <laughs> got along great, you know, like it was always great. And then the the creative people were really were really wonderful we always had good experiences with you cliff with anyone we met from anyone we met from corporate it was absolutely nice people all the way along the way we were well compensated it was not on the day it might have been a lot of work but it wasn't like you know we we would work sometimes 15 days out of a year I was, you know, okay, I was, I've been curious about that at time. 15 days out of a year. That's a great, yeah, maybe less. That's, I mean, that's yeah. great. That's, that's a great uh, indicator right there. Two weeks. And when we were with Barkley, we were, we were seeing parts, you know, seeing parts of the country recorded in Denver and Nashville and Phoenix and Vegas yeah. and um, North Carolina and Kansas city. We got to, we got to see great places. We did a couple of conventions and everyone there was really nice. So oh, the, our folks loved you. You know that it was, yeah, they were super, great, yeah. super you guys, sweet. You guys were like rock stars. Everybody lined up to have their picture taken. Yeah. yeah. It was, and, you know. and, and you know, like, to put, I shouldn't say like rock stars. You were rock stars. <laughs> you were a rock star. I'm, I'm sorry for the. You're the rock story. star of the three of us, man. You're the one who can go up and shred on your axe. They <laughs> yeah. yeah. can hammer. They yeah. can hammer it's out. Just some nobody drugs. stood in line to have their picture taken with me. You know? <laughs> that was bad news. So Pete, what's what from your standpoint? What about impact on your life, sort of thing? It. I mean, it absolutely changed my life completely in all the ways that TJ said. Consistent employment to to me it gave me the ability to work uh, at other jobs that were accepting of a, of a, you know, hey, every once in a while, I'm going to have to go fly out to do these commercials. But if I got hired, they would tell me, yeah, sure, that's fine. We'd work around my schedule. I got to write for an amazing TV shows, spend my time and my mental energy working on live yeah. shows and things that, you know, this, that were done for free because I was able to have this as a source of income. And yeah, um, yeah, I think it helped, you know, as an actor, you're always trying to, you know, sell yourself to, you know, the next employer who might want to hire you for another part. And I think people who get one TV show after another are always more likely to, even if it's a small part, you're always more likely to be on the next one because they say, okay, well, this person already did this. They get it. Same thing with movie actors. You know, the more parts you do, they beget more parts. Yeah, I think while this was, you know, sort of quote unquote, just a commercial, they were all funny. They were pinpoint funny, really great. Like these were like ads for us as, as actors in a way of like, you want someone to do something funny and they're improvising and they're flexible. Like, I think it absolutely, like no one ever said, oh, you got this part because you're in these commercials, but 
it just sort of raises your profile. And I absolutely 100% echo everything TJ said about the people we worked with. But I think it also gave me like a confidence overall to say like, I belong here. You know, this is a, this is a place where in this industry, it's so difficult to get kind of momentum and to get a toehold. And this was just, it was like having this, uh, you know, really long job for years and years and years where you see the same people, you know, the crew, uh, the folks from the ad agency, the people, yeah, people from corporate. I mean, we, it was like we got to sort of have this extended family. And even when, when the ad agencies change, we get to meet new people and that's nice. Right. Too. And, you know, and right. also in a very concrete way, Cliff, like we bought homes, Pete and I each bought a house yeah. and yeah. we both started marriages and BTK started a family that, yeah. you know, you feel right. like you can support that you can, you know, yeah. like that you set them up. Okay. And in, and in very, and in funny ways, like yeah, I, I had, I did a voiceover with Bernie Mac. Uh, or a voiceover job he was doing he was doing his lines for madagascar and they just needed someone to read to him so he had someone to react to and that day he walked in he was like oh hey man i love your work and was like yeah right like this guy this is mm. just something people say to each other of like and so it was like oh yeah okay well th- thanks so much he goes breakfast and he's <laughs> quoting one of the commercials like this is this is why you know the original kings of comedy he's yeah. doing his things for madagascar and he really did remember one of the commercials so it yeah. like where pete said like it made you feel like you belong like yeah. i didn't belong with bernie mac but like bernie mac knew knew the commercials so it didn't yeah. make you feel like you know you were somehow yeah. in that world i think pete, well, didn't edie falco like the commercials where you met yeah I, when i worked for late night with seth myers i went back and talked to the the guests come before the show uh and i you know you don't really want to bother them but i love edie falco who played carmela soprano and the sopranos and his, you know nurse jackie and done a million great things i've seen her do plays i just had to right. go back and talk to her because i was like you're one of my favorite people and i said i you know i write for the show and i i never do this i just wanted to say i, I i'm such a huge fan of yours and i'm glad to have you on the show and and it's great to have you. And she's like, have you worked together before? You look so familiar. <laughs> and anytime someone says to me, you look so familiar, I start yeah. in a second. I'm like, I know what this is going to be. So I'm not going to like prolong this. So I said, well, I'm on these commercials. And she went, oh my gosh, I love those. And this is <laughs> yeah. like this respected, serious actor. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Was- well, I got to tell you, for years, anywhere that I went, when someone would learn the connection with Sonic, it was your creative. It was your creative uh, number one runaway, 99, if not 100% feedback from folks. It was your creative that po- people immediately hit me with yeah. as what brought passion and enjoyment to them about our brand. So it was it was enormous. Yeah, it was just uh, fascinating in terms of people's action and reaction, you know, regarding this. So, and I will also say that like meeting people, like I would go to Texas a lot. So I'd go into a place where coming from New York or even in Chicago, people sort of recognize you, but it's nothing like it is in Texas to just the ads play all the time, much more on TV, you know, then the recognition is, is through the roof. Well, and there's a, you know, a thousand stores, thousands on drive-ins in Texas. So the brand presence is, you know, you not only get the television, you can't, as they say in Texas, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Sonic, you know? So, yeah. Uh, TJ, TJ stay, stay away from a dog joke. Everybody I met down there, there was so nice. And it was like bringing just joy to their lives just to recognize 
that like I was somebody that they knew from TV. And then they were like, yeah. oh, you're so, you're so nice. You're like, you don't mind taking a picture? And I said, no, of course not. Like, I don't think of yeah. myself as like yeah. a TV star. Yeah. There were people who, you know, some, some woman was like, you know, my dad's in the hospital now and yeah, dead, and he's like, you know, you're, he lights up when your commercials come on in the, the TV in his room. And like that, wow. you know, that's not something that I got into it for, but that's a wonderful. Oh uh, yeah. Out. Yeah. Yeah. That's big. Yeah. So uh, TJ, when you, when you bought this house, did you buy that sofa you'd been sleeping on? I'm unable to sleep on anything else now. You know, it's the, it's the only, it's the only material that feels right on my, on my body. <laughs> that's good. I'm, I'm happy for you. That's good. So what about now? I, I think our listeners would probably uh, get a kick out of hearing what each of you are doing now. And, and before we kind of close in here on the, on the program, what paths are you on professionally these days? I am doing a bunch of different stuff. I'm thinking of new ideas of pitching ideas for TV shows and stuff, writing some other projects of things that are kind of as of yet unformed. I mean, before the pandemic hit, I, I was actually auditioning for and getting a lot of stuff. So hopefully that'll pick back up. It's just kind of a little bit of everything. I always do a little bit of everything. Yeah, I like to keep a lot of small irons and a bunch of little fun. Yeah, well, variety is the variety is the key, I yeah, think. it's good. So, TJ? Not too, too much. The stuff I was still doing was mostly in live theater. So that's definitely been, you know, been put on, been put on pause. My friend Rush Howell and I do a weekly podcast called Here's the Situation that we enjoy. And that's about it. Otherwise, a lot of other stuff is on pause. And I'm also maybe considering even like a change in career. So I don't know if show business is where I'm going to be. And, you know, in the future, I might be baking bread or uh, trying to make pretty tables out of out of oak and teak wood. So we'll, ah, we'll see. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that in this pandemic time, that's a type of analysis and questioning that uh, a lot of folks are doing. I've uh, I've also gotten away easy for so long, Cliff. It might be time to actually start working. You know? No, don't say that. <laughs> Not that much innovation. <laughs> That's the kind of innovation we don't. Need. Well, in the post uh, my post CEO days, now variety is everything, so it can make things a lot more fun. So, what do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your well? Uh, time um, doing? I I got this podcast going. You may not know about it. But, uh, <laughs> I heard about it. Tell us yeah, what? Yeah, I thought just, you just called Pete and I to catch up. Well, kind of, kind of, you know. So my book, Master of None, how, how a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, was released. But I'm sure you all know that because you'd already ordered your copy. So what the heck? I don't need to tell you that. It's remiss yeah. of us to have not already said congratulations on that. That is yeah, no well, small feat. That's, that's all right. You've, you've got three minutes to say that repeatedly. So you know, <laughs> it's, it's all right. You know, uh, Working, although it's uh, things are quiet these days, working with a, a small repertory theater here to kind of build and rebuild that. And, Oh, so cool. that's, that's, that's fun. What's, what, what's the name of it? Let, let, let me... it's, it's called uh, Oklahoma City Repertory Theater. Wow. So, Great. Um, and it's about 20 years old. Uh, actually, a little bit of transition. The founder, artistic director fellow is ready to hang it up next year. And so we've literally just started a national search for artistic director. And so if you know anybody, you know, I mean. Oh, you know, okay, Cliff, that's, I'll that's come down lot. and run your damn theater. All right, yeah, buddy. Uh, well, you guys come in for a little fundraiser, you know. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> you guys specialize now. We're not far from Texas. Very you know, cool. my, my stuff is uh, across the across the spectrum, and and I'm enjoying all of it, you know. Very so. cool, man. Oh, and here's my, here's my newest title, Grandpa. Oh, Grandpa. Hey. Grandpa. Little Oliver was born last week. That's your first. That's first grandchild, and and uh, a week later, still the only grandchild. You oh, know? good. So 
Uh, get your week. cleats on, Oliver. Welcome to the game. Yeah. He's a, he's a real cutie, you know, but I mean, <laughs> I know you say that's no surprise, you know, so. so. He's, still <laughs> the heck? he's still the cutest grandkid in the world. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Anyway, well, what a pleasure this has been. Extraordinary creative work uh, you did for our brand and our company over those almost 20 years and in the time that I was engaged with you. Uh, were just fantastic for our business. But I also have to say, just extremely enjoyable and and uh, both interacting with you individually, but uh, just watching the very creative fashion with which you approached your profession. What a wonderful thing for us to be the beneficiary of your creativity. You made my life easier, and I know that was your primary objective, so I appreciate it. You know? Well, as as Pete and I said too, like you you made our lives easier, <laughs> and a lot different, a lot different than it than it would have been. It, it really made a lot of things possible. You know, and it's yeah. a testament to you and how you went about your business. Uh, like, not to sound like a jerk, but that we'd even want to talk to you after all this. Time. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you you well, were like the head yeah. of the whole thing. Like, why the heck would we want to talk to like the head business guy? That's not yeah. the kind of guy we usually want to talk to well if, it, well if it makes any difference you're the only ones that will talk to me you know so you know. <laughs> well then then you fooled us you fooled yeah. us if, if everyone else figured you out you still had us snowed so what a wonderful thing to be able to practice your craft do it for such a long sustained period of time and and to do it you know find it have it where it's financially successful for yeah. you i mean my business over the decades was helping small business operators you know we call them sonic franchisees yeah but small business operators be successful and frankly change their lives and change their families' lives in the process. There's nothing I took greater satisfaction from than observing that. And so this is a total parallel path. The fact that it meant that much to you guys, how gratifying that is to me and, uh, and in a small way, then how gratifying it is to have this time this morning to, yeah. to visit with you and have the feedback. So it's good stuff, guys. It's good stuff. <laughs> Best of luck to each of you. We'll see it um, for uh, we'll see it for Thanksgiving, Uncle Cliff. Yeah. <laughs> We're making plans right now, <laughs> right. you know. So I can hardly wait. I'll let my family know so they have plenty of uh, time to, <laughs> yeah. to get ready, so to speak. Okay. Well, all the best to the two of you. Uh, look forward to seeing you along the way in one form or another. Be great to get beyond this pandemic and see how that helps you further unleash your creative juices and well, we'll come on down and uh you know when we can gather again pete and i'll come down down be in the audience for uh for the oklahoma city repertory yeah, theaters we can uh, see a nice might, see a nice play might, might rather get you on the stage instead of uh, <laughs> oh, in, the, in the audience <laughs> good luck <laughs> okay can't thank you enough thank you so. thank you cliff yeah Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Opportunity.